you in need of comprehensive legal help via legitimate, qualitative work, or the kind of work you would only ask a relative for? Well, friend, look no further than the offices of Captain Evan Shelby, Esquire, for solutions to all that ails you, no matter which side of the line you hail from. Captain Shelby can perform surveys, scouting, weddings, last rites, arrests, searches, and seizures, both reasonable and otherwise, beatings, kidnappings, conspiracies, and costume parties. For this month only, Mapping the Zone listeners can get 50% off of a wedding with the code CHICKAMAGUA when bundled with a literal kidnapping. Don't settle for less when Evan Shelby can offer the best. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Cody. I am one of the co-hosts. Hi, I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. We are following the reading schedule from the Pynchon subreddit, and today we are discussing chapters 71 through 73, the final chapters of part two of Mason and Dixon. Uh, Will, do you have a summary for us? That I do. The fairies did come this week. So we find ourselves and the astronomers in a Delaware sailor's haunt, beginning the ritual of drowning sorrows. All the work left is writing and finalizing now that Dixon has finished his map. Of course, Mason takes a look over it at his request and takes issue with the fleur-de-lis central to Dixon's compass rose. The rumors of Jesuit interference are plenty. The, ro- the Royal Society would have a field day with such a damnedly French insignia. However, as it is his hallmark, Dixon refuses to compromise such an integral part of his identity as a needleman. Perhaps attempting to put these tensions behind him, though his history puts that hypothesis into doubt, Mason eloquently praises the cartography. Cherry Coke poses the question, did their schism come at the pressure point of the Great Warrior Path, or in the following year as they ran another line over the Visto for the society, simply driven by the simply driven by the comforts of civilization, dull and dreariness depart for excitement's sake. Even as they grow tired of this easy work, it seems to act as a seed for desire, for possibility, and what would be, filling the space around with shades of westering. As they tromp amidst the frogs and fly larvae of New England marshes, Dixon connects the dots that he'd been hiding from his mind's eye all this time. They had been sent, in all their commissions, to help maintain and sustain the rightfulness of slavery to indicate the sanctity of law, as the stars insist. This latest meridian they're marking features some sort of slab construction, like some linear stonehenge, providing a further assertion of trueness. They're operating with a massive target of sorts, insulated plumb lines, borrowed tools, and Mason likes it not one bit, despite Dixon's mild nostalgia for some good old-fashioned surveying work. Upon the reverend's introduction of a whip to the matter at hand, Uncle Ives argues fiercely against the story he knows to be coming. Regardless, Cherry Coke explains his true reason for such liberalities in in embellishment, and speaks of the time that Dixon, clearly marked Quaker by his hat, is hawked hawked a slave. Always well-tempered, he attempts to decline neutrally, but 
driver takes the opportunity to remind him of the broad implications of the trade, regardless of his consent. Hours later, after the auction, the driver comes back, blaming his stock's poor performance on Dixon's mild descent. That is when Jeremiah steps up to him, punches him squarely in the face, and then relieves him of his whip, before giving the slave trader a taste of his own medicine. He is soon crying for mercy for his children's sake. Dixon takes the keyring, tosses it to one of the women in chains, and on their advisement, gets the hell out of Dodge as a mob forms, taking the whip with him. This act of courage seems to cement a great deal of respect for his partner in Mason, and seems unable to refuse the reality of his own relative cowardice. A final realization, Dixon comes to understand some of Lemaire's obscurities in that meeting now so long past. They hope somehow that this work in Delaware will function as some professional penance, to help dissolve at least a bit of the pain they've inflicted upon the dragon they so clearly can see hidden in Dixon. They so clearly can see hidden in Dixon's map. As they finish the work, Mason drafts his own epitaph and dreads the return. One night, Rebecca accosts him to remind the man of what should be his priorities, warning him that Dixon cannot truly be his support, as the Durham man finds the grief of widowdom far too much a downer. Before setting sail, they excursion to New York City, finding it somehow even more chaotic and violent than Dixon's visit, and not finding any of their friends said to be out of town. And so, taking ferry by ferry, line by line, dock by dock, they leave America on September 11th, 1768. The Reverend takes a moment to ponder the counterfactual. Had they continued beyond the Great Warrior Path, it would happen like so. They'd run out of trees for axes to chew and dismiss all bearers but Stig as they enter the plains. They'd winter on the trail, live off the fruits and roots of the land they've already scarred so deeply. They'd meet monuments built by the French and Spanish, wander into native villages just to be chased off, even pick up some companions along the way, as the line itself lent inertia to their own motives. Freemen previously seen as property would thank them for their work. One day, they would even find a cult worshipping a heavenly body, and they would identify it as a planet unbeforeseen, which is Uranus. Only then would pragmatism break the spell, and send them back over the line in reverse where they'd finally achieve fame, acclaim, and membership in the Royal Society as such. However, not all is so jolly. On return, they would be chased even more viciously, as the inhabitants would be loath of the reminder of the past, of change, of certainty and power from above, which they can do not but accept. A reminder of the smallness of their lives. They take the blame for marriages and lost profits, as a monster descends upon only the inhabitants of one side of their line. Once they return to the seaside, now their westering has been turned into some interminable lineomania, and they build a floating visto across the Atlantic, retiring upon it as masters of their own work for once. All right. Thank you for that. Um, well, let's start where we always start with everyone's general uh, views on these last chapters. I think these chapters are obviously, I think we would all be in agreement that they're they're less taxing from a standpoint of thematic intent than the five previous, especially now that we've reached a point where sort of, for better or for worse, that the main plot is is over and done with. We're, we're kind of winding down. I, I think my favorite stuff in these chapters is the frank conversations between Mason and Dixon about 
where they go from here, you know, what their life is going to be like now that it's over. And there's this sort of interesting, I'm trying to think of the, 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 the correct word, maybe contemplation. There's this sort of interesting contemplation between the two of them that they were clearly spared from the seahorse debacle for what they've just completed. And unlike most people in life, they've kind of known up to this point what their their manifest destiny was going to be or what they were being, you know, saved for in a predestined standpoint. And now they've come to the end of which very few people would ever would ever understand. Like almost nobody gets to the point where their destiny has been fulfilled and they still have, you know, seemingly 20 years of life after and so the the inherent desire in both of them at different points to kind of stay in America, thinking that perhaps that's where they're supposed to be, given that they were sort of railroaded here to do this task, I think is very interesting. And, and their frank discussions back and forth about why it is that they won't do that or why it is that they want to do that, um, I really loved. And also Mason making the decision to to break the cycle of the situation with his father and his upbringing um, is just such a great sort of wrap up to a lot of his, his personal character themes over the course of, of the past, you know, 600 pages. So that's the stuff in these chapters that I really like. The rest of it is just sort of a, a gradual winding down of things. But I also enjoyed that extended interlude about what would have happened if they had, if they had gone through the, the warrior path as well, if they mm-hmm. had continued to push forward. I find those, those sections very interesting. Yeah, there's lots to like about these this these sections. I do have some stuff that I've been kind of, that I'll talk about later. I think once we get into the the section by section part, um, uh, I mean, chapter seventy three is one of the more uh, kind of fantastical and more fun parts of the book. Uh, it kind of reads like a like a visual montage in some ways. I've heard. Like it's kind of it, it reads kind of like uh, like a little bit more pulpy and less serious than than some of the rest of the book, uh, which is it's that's kind of interesting that that is contrasted with chapter seventy two, which is one of the more serious and um, uh, one of the more yeah it's it, chapter seventy two is definitely very serious and it's definitely kind of like the uh, an emotional climax, at least for Dixon and some uh, storylines that have been kind of ghosting through the book with Dixon that we've kind of talked about with Dixon's kind of rising uh, anger and frustration with, um, as he says in chapter 71, how they keep on being assigned to places where there are slaves um, and how he, he does seem to be kind of realizing how much of the British empire is built on stuff like slavery and, the exploitation of of people. Uh, I really these chapters are some of my are also some of my favorite in the book um, for a few different reasons. Yeah, I felt like it, this is a really good um, sort of pin in 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 the cap of of all of what's come before. Uh, and obviously, it's not it's not the end. You know, this is kind of the the penultimate ending. I guess it's you know the. You know, as, as you mentioned, Luke, the um, you know Dixon has his his plot arc kind of wrapped up, and in, in and in what's really a, a I, I love that moment in the story, as heavy as it is. Um, I think it's it's a really kind of 
important moment for Dixon to have. And um, I, I think this is just such a, a wonderful set of chapters in that it's, we were wrapping up so much of the story, but we're also looking back on so many of the, the other themes that, that have been going on, especially with like the predestination and, and what they're, you know, what brought them here, what brought them to do what they were ended up doing, you know, how much were they involved in making their own choices or how much of it was kind of predetermined and how much of it was um, laid out before them. And they're just kind of being guided along these, these paths. And then also the, the frank discussions of slavery and, and the horrors of it and whether or not they're complicit in, in any of it, given what they've been doing. And um, yeah, 71 and 72 are just very good. Um, kind of, it, it feels like, like closure. And then 73, I absolutely love, um, I, I think you, you know, Luke, you mentioned the, the fantastic elements of it and it really just kind of adds a, a lighthearted note to, to end it on again, even though it's not the ending, it's, it's such a sort of self-contained story within the story. I think it's like seven pages or maybe a little bit more than that, but there's just so much that plays out in, in that short amount of time. And it's so well-crafted. Um, I, yeah, I, I love these chapters and it's, um, I think it's a great way to push towards the, the final part of this book. Jumping, jumping right off of what you were saying there, Cody, is that I see this as sort of the the end of the plot of the book, in the, in the same way that the the latitudes and departures section. When when you read the book for the first time, at least I did, and many other people, it seems if people are being honest online, it's it feels dreamy and spacey and kind of you know it doesn't feel irrelevant. Everything is relevant. It's a book. It wouldn't be there if it weren't. But it, it, it feels unreal until they get to America. And that's when the story actually grabs most people. And the way that that happens on the back end, too, is very interesting. I, I, I really, in particular, in particular appreciate this, the sort of perspective, perspectival shift that Mason and Dixon have through these chapters where they, they, you know, they had their realizations previously, for the most part, other than a couple of things here and there, um, like the slave thing. Uh, but in, in these chapters, they complete their character developments in a, in, in a constructive sense. They are, they are who they feel they need to be, even if mm -hmm. they know they're not perfect, even if they know they're not, uh, you know more than just just men um, but they 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 have finally matured even dixon as lackadaisical as he is him choosing to pick up the whip to throw away the one part of other than the hat really but the one part of quakership that he's really <laughs> held on to the the pacifism to give mm -hmm. that up because of essentially his self-loathing for having assisted in slavery in various ways it's it, it's beautiful i love it and not just not just giving it up but like firmly giving it up because when he tells the slave driver what he intends to do where he just says i'm going to kill you 
Like it's mm-hmm. very, it's a very matter of fact. He doesn't start by beating him and then gets like worked up into a frenzy and accidentally kills him. Like he, he very clearly has his intention set and vocalizes that in in as direct as a way as possible. Which which really does show a a fundamental shift in his perspective in a way that is incredibly impactful. Because I remember when I read that piece of dialogue, I was like, oh god, yeah, he's this isn't just a a, a threat. He's going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a promise, not a threat. Yeah. Yeah. The the and then once we get to the end of the actual story there and we move into this the subjunctive of it, what would have happened had they crossed the Great Warrior Path. It is just incredibly uh torturous in a way to to read through. Because how much of it how much of it while you read it are are you thinking, well that's that's amazing. They really should have crossed the path. Mm-hmm. And how much of it is horror in some sense that, you know, they don't witness until they've already, you know, committed the damage. And I think that's exactly sort of the point because, you know, Thomas Pinchon tells you very plainly, if they were to have crossed the line, this is what would have happened. It describes that sort of descent into modernity. Um, so sure, you know, we're watching Mason and Dixon have this incredible adventure viewing all of these these strange uh, you know, rock formations and even stranger peoples than have been previously come across by by the white settlers and like locating new planets in the sky and all of that. But we also know from just 3 chapters ago or or whatever it actually is how that is going to fundamentally alter that land in a way that is not positive. Yeah. One part of that I find truly fascinating, I guess. But you know what? I'll I'll keep it for later. Sorry. <laughs> well, let's uh let, let's start with uh with chapter 71. So, I'm so I... curious what this note you have here is. <laughs> I figured I didn't want to I didn't want to show my hand. Um so I had to I had to make my sneaky little note on here. Yeah, for for listeners' sake, uh, right now in front of our sh- uh, in front of all of us are the show notes, which Cody has written. Chapter seventy one in Cody's wild ass theory that probably a real stretch, but feels like it has some merit. <laughs> yeah, so I I will preface this by saying uh, I think that this may be a little bit. I don't want to say conspiratorial. I feel like like Charlie in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Like I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at the board with the red string, trying to, uh, you know, explain this this bonkers thing. But I think there, you know, I could be way off base here. Anyway, I, I'm getting too far off in the weeds. Here's here's essentially my theory. So I've I've been especially since um, Luke brought up the the idea of Richard Verena. Um, and his relationship with Penchon kind of inspiring this story. That's been sitting in my head the entire time I have been reading this since Luke made that comment. So when I was reading chapter 71, a lot of what was happening felt kind of like the explanation, or not so much the explanation, but the, the process of finishing a book. And not, oh. not only that... There are parts of like at the very beginning of seventy one, when um, is it uh, Dixon is there? You know they're kind of talking about like okay we're done we have to do all this paperwork now and then turn it in. It it has this sort of feel of you know like 
I've, I've finished the book and now I have to actually like hand it off and let someone have this and look at it and tell me, you know, how I did or, or the, you know, they're, they're, I'm going to be judged based on this work that I have done and this work that I have put so much of my, my time and my life into. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a couple of other parts that have a, a sort of, you know, similar feel of, you know, they're, they're finishing up this work and they're contemplating how that work is going to define them as people. Uh, there's a mention here on, on 688 about Dixon talking about the North Point on the map and how it kind of represents the, the map maker. Um, and he doesn't want to, as he puts it, uh, it does not generally befit the surveyor to debase the value of his North Point by lending it to ends political, which, you know, I, I think Pinchon very specifically does not want to, you know, have a political definition attached to him. And I could see the the fear, especially after stuff like Gravity's Rainbow and, and like this, where, you know, people may try to assign a certain political um, label to him. And I, I can see the, the legitimate fear of, of that being done and, and, you know, people trying to define him that way. But more, more so what I see is, as I've read this book, it, I get the feeling that Mason and Dixon are Pinchon and Farina. I, the other way around. I, I kind of feel like Mason is... Farina, he's you know he's married and he's a little more um, grounded, and and Dixon as Penchon is is a little more freewheeling, and uh, you know the 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 it's the straight man combo, and the this whole time of knowing that these two like their journey is going to come to an end, but also one of them is going to die before the other one, and. So it, it, at the same time, kind of feels like, you know, I, there's always been that feeling of, of Cherry Coke as the authorial self-insert. But especially in some of these later chapters, I feel like maybe Mason and Dixon were also represented. Like, that's where the idea gestated from is these two people on this journey and they're growing as people. They're growing together and they're telling stories. And, you know, Cherry Coke is there to fill in the blanks where you know, where they can't fill it in, you know, for whatever reason. So it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of these weird connections that I've, I've been making along the way. And this is, these last couple chapters have been the parts where I've kind of started to fill in those blanks. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Um, but that's essentially my, my wild ass theory. That, that is significantly more reasonable than I would have assumed a term like wild ass would be attached <laughs> to the front of. Um, I, I definitely see where you're coming from with that, especially if we're looking at, you know, at Dixon as, as Pinchon, because even from a standpoint of historicity, we know very little about Dixon other than kind of where he was born and this thing mm -hmm. that he did. We also know very little about Pinchon, um, you know, and if you're looking at the way that Dixon, Dixon interact, interacts with a lot of people, how he always kind of has like a bad joke to throw out or, usually has just some kind of levity and is clearly more adept at getting along with different groups of people and can kind of view things from different perspectives. I feel like a lot of that would in theory be attachable to someone like Pinchon. You know, we don't, we don't know as a result right, of right. his purposeful obscurity, but you know, generally people who statistically based on studies I've read, people who write and people who read a lot tend to be more empathetic, tend to be easier at seeing other people's perspectives and points of view. 
certainly the standpoint of of humor and the kind of humor that that they actually that he engages in as a character is seems pretty fitting to the kind of humor that that Pinchon engages in his novels um and and likely did in real life so i i think that there are some definite correspondence you know to reality between between Dixon and and Pinchon definitely um and if we're kind of viewing this work as a sort of love letter to the relationship with Richard Farina and and all of that 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 Luke so smartly pointed out however many episodes ago I think that that is a pretty pretty good way to ground who each titular character might be um no it strikes me as perfectly reasonable I have a, a an incredibly convoluted variant of that theory that I've been working with. Interesting. Um, I would love it, to hear it. It's not uh, coherent, but I will say basically. <laughs> but and it's why I haven't tried to explain it before. Um, but I, suffice it to say that I think that Pinchon has spent a lot of his time as an author writing, uh, like novels that look to be uh what are they called romanicle books that essentially are just a real account with names and dates swapped for obscurity um, he, he spent a lot of his time as an author writing books that you could reasonably at least for certain scenes within each book uh, say well this is supposed to be this real person in this real situation because it happened like this but one, one of the things i like about his him as an author is the fact that he doesn't like he recognizes the power in that but he doesn't take it seriously the, mm-hmm. the power of that kind of direct illusion and allegory and so what i get the sense of is that absolutely uh, mason and dixon are Pinchon and farina however i i wouldn't i don't get the sense that one of them is one of them if that makes sense I get the sense that yeah, in yeah. some scenes Mason is Pinchon, in some scenes Dixon is, vice versa. It, it, it that there are scenes, and I, I might even say that in throughout the whole book, that all in all, Mason and Dixon are Pinchon, and as fr- friendship is many different things, but for many people, especially young men like. Richard Farina was when he died, and like Pinchon was. Uh, friendship is a very powerful, and I say especially for men because generally we have less uh, strong social networks. But for for young men, it's a we we often see their friends, their closest friends, as like reflections of themselves through a funhouse mirror, and so they yeah. they're. I see sort of a like a platonic soul thing in Mason and Dixon and Pynchon and Farina in in the way that their friendship is discussed throughout the book, if that's clear. Yeah, I I, I think I mean I definitely I see where you're coming from. And I, I I think that I hadn't I guess I hadn't really put the idea of them kind of swapping back and forth between you know who you know which one is representing Pinchon and which one is representing Farina. Um, I definitely I, I still see Cherry Coke as is a sort of you know Pinchon looking back on everything as as the authorial insert. You know this is him at his age now when he's when he's writing this book when he's finishing it up and he's able to 
fill, you know, as cherry Coke, he can go in and fill in the gaps of these stories and, and pepper them with these little, you know, embellishments here and there and, and make them more, um, narratively fun and, and interesting. And, you know, we can't really correct them because we weren't there, you know, but it's, you know, it, it has a sort of, I think if that was the, if that was the intention, um, I think that's a really smart thing to do. And it's a really sort of playful and, and meaningful way to, to have those memories with, with his friend and someone who meant so much to him. And, um, and I'm also glad I, I do want to kind of divert for just a second because I am, I am glad that you, you mentioned the, the, that issue with, with male friendship and how there's the, the, the social connection is a little bit different because I do think a, a book like this, and, and there are a few others that I can think of, um, but a, a book like this, I think is important for really showing the, the, the true love that, that these two men can have for each other and to, and to not make it, you know, I, I think I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. I feel like other authors would either be afraid to, to show that kind of relationship. And it's, it, it's, you know, normal instances. Like it, it, it should not be something that is viewed as abnormal or weird or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a beautiful relationship that these two have. And I think that it's important to have these kind of stories, um, especially in times like these where, you know, that, that idea of, of men being friends and, and truly loving each other on, on a completely platonic level, you don't really see that. And it's, it's so well done here. And I really, really, truly wish there were more stories that could tell a, um, that, that could display a, a relationship like that of, of these two men who truly care about each other so much. And, it's never, you know, made as a joke or it's never made to seem off-putting or anything like that. It's just, it's very genuine. And I, I, I really, that's one of the things I love the absolute most about this book. And it, we get into some, I think in chapter 72, we get into whether or not I'll actually um, kind of watch Dixon's back and stuff like that, which I do think is, is relevant to the discussion we're having. Um I also I also think that the end of chapter seventy one where uh, Mason writes it's the end of their restless time in America and then Dixon says we well for me was it restful then um, I think <laughs> yeah yeah because that that does kind of speak to a certain kind of um, opposites how they're kind of opposites in a lot of ways um, you know Dixon goes seems to go from woman to woman. Uh, with ease and then mason has been stuck on the same woman even though she's dead for you know i think over a decade now um if not longer um yeah there, I, and yeah this is obvious but you know the friendship the central theme this the, what unifies all the different parts of this novel is is their friendship yeah this conversation has inspired my brain to generate a much a much more wilder ass story. <laughs> All right. Uh, theory. Um, and it is that uh, Dixon is the id, Mason is the ego, and Cherry Coke is the super ego. And I think it would suck, but I think that given the amount of Freudian satire 
throughout the rest of his work, I think you could probably write a thesis with that frame. I'm going to be thinking about this for a while, probably. I feel like there's probably there's something there, I think. Yeah, that that feels like there's enough of a of a thread of truth in it at first glance that it's worthy of at least exploring more. I I will not be doing so. So please, anybody, take it. <laughs> Somebody find the red string and start making the connections. Find Carol. Well, the other so the other big uh, thematic thread that comes through in in this chapter and and bleeds over into seventy two is. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, is slavery. And you have at the end of 71, uh, Mason and Dixon are kind of ruminating on on just how complicit they were in everything. I, I want to read the ending of the chapter um, and, and just kind of uh, get everyone's perspective on it. Uh, Everywhere they've sent us, the Cape, St. Helena, America, what's the element common to all? Long voyages by sea, replies Mason, blinking in exhaustion by now chronic. Was there anything else? Slaves. Every day at the Cape, we lived with slavery in our faces, more of it at St. Helena, and now here we are again in another colony, this time having drawn them a line between their slave keepers and their wage payers, as if doomed to re-encounter through the world this public secret, this shameful core, pretending it to be ever somewhere else, with the Turks, the Russians, the companies, down there, down where it smells like warm brine and gunpowder fumes, they're murdering and dispossessing thousands untallied, the innocent of the world, passing daily into the hands of slave owners and torturers. But oh, never in Holland, nor in England, that garden of fools. Christ, Mason. Christ what? What did I do? Huz, we didn't, we didn't take the king's money as we're, ta- as we're taking it again, whilst slaves waited upon us and we neither objected, uh, neither one objected, as little as we have here in certain houses south of the line. Where does it end? No matter where in it we go, shall we find the world tyrants and slaves? America was the one place we should not have found them. Yet we're not slaves after all. We're hirelings. I don't trust this king, Mason. I don't think anybody else does either. The saw Lord Fairs take the drop at Tyburn. They execute their own. What may they be willing to do to us? Um, and I, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine being in, in their position because, I, I mean, Dixon is absolutely right you know it by by no means are they are they you know willing participants in what's happening but as he says they're also not really doing anything to stop it mm-hmm. and regardless of the fact that they you know they obviously don't have the power to stop it it's it's the the lack of action that leads to complicity and i think that you know we've we've seen it for so long throughout this book you know popping up here and again in in mason not mason i'm sorry dixon and it's finally come to a head and and we'll get into what that leads into in the next chapter but that you know it it has to be just something that is is so hard to grapple with internally and for him to have this realization and i think you know have it boiling to the surface at this point it's it's not surprising what he ends up doing. No, not at all. And I love the, I love the fact that in that section you read out, one of them says, if there was one place where we shouldn't have found slaves, it was here. Yeah. Which is such an incredible acknowledgement, not just of the real life history. You know, if we're talking about what 
America, and I'm speaking that in like the mythological sense, means as this place of, you know, freedom and enlightenment and, uh, you know, a place where, where all men are created equal, are, are given unalienable rights and all of that, and how that mythology of what the place is has never borne out in reality. So there, there's certainly a part of that where if you're reading this in the day, as everybody is, no one's reading this in the 1700s um, or the 1600s either, it, it's, it, it hits you in that way. But it's also true of what the geographical world and the geopolitical world more, more accurately looked like at the time where, you know, there, there was not slaves in England anymore. They had already outlawed it. And the places where, where slaves were very common still were these sort of brutal, almost corporate dictatorships where they were being used for the purpose of, of expanding the edges of, of empire and, and of, of new, newly building colonies. Whereas the United States at this point was an established colony, it had cities, it had infrastructure, it had, you know, sprawling agricultural prospects. There was no reason for that to be the case there. So it's, it's this one line that, when I read it, completely kind of bowled me over because of the fact that it works in both senses of the, word, of, of the, of the terminology of America, as in prior to the, the founding of it as a nation, and then after the founding of it as a nation in 76. And then into what, you know, for some, for some people in this country, it still is now. Um, it, it's, it, it was one of the, the sections of this book that really, or this set of chapters, rather, that really hit me pretty hard. I, I think we, and I, uh, this, is, this is broad speculation, but I don't think it's out of place. I think we, as people alive today, we tend to look back at, things like slavery and we cannot comprehend the political convolutions that that maintained it as an institution it's really incredibly hard to look back and to say hey those people back then yeah about half of them were incredibly racist (laughs) um but a good 20 to 40 percent at any given time were staunchly abolitionist or at the very least had if they had a vote on it they would have voted against slavery maybe not staunch but they were abolitionists and that's it's incredibly complicated and hard to emotionally stomach the idea of being in the position that they are in let alone any normal person back in those days, the, the incredible degree of injustice that you, you had to tolerate, that daily life inculcated you into. The, the horror of that, I think, is something that is really incredibly difficult for us today to, to, to get in the mindset of, because we can sit here and think about it, but unless you like work with human trafficking organizations or something, or whatever i don't think any of us really have the 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 life experience to have an understanding at all and mm-hmm. the way that the whole book handles slavery but especially this chapter the way it, it's it starts off entirely silly i mean one of the first terms in the 
in this in chapter 71 is retributive pultrification. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it starts off silly and it continues silly. I mean, it gets a little more real, but it's real in that we are talking about like brotherly love sense of real, you know, Hey, I don't know if that flirtily works. Oh, it's great though. You, you did a good map and you know, you feel good for Dixon and you, you read all this, this fun bickering stuff between Lomax and Wix Cherry Coke and ideas about random things and Shaw and then suddenly we just get smacked in the face with that line that you pointed out Kate uh you know it should not have happened here mm -hmm. it, it I think that this is as as about as good as you're gonna get at least from a white author of conveying these kinds of things and this is the kind of thing that a white author should be conveying is what it yeah. feels like to be the complicit party yeah, you're you're completely correct, and I I like your your call out about how difficult and different the institution of slavery still existing into this time period was for for the beginning of the country. Because if you study early American history and you read through you know all of the presidents prior to Abraham Lincoln, it is just a series of people trying to find a way to handle the slavery question basically as far as the major events of different politicians of, of just them working with congress them being the president working with congress and and trying to find some way to either bring it to an end or to contain it or do something to try and and undo the this whole process um or at least lessen its impacts and obviously none of that worked i mean there was as you point out will that staunchly you know up to half of the population was abolitionist. that's that's how you ended up with john brown and the slave revolts and all of that happening which led to, to genuine conflict in this country prior to the civil war but it is it is so monumentally a a weight on the back of this country that i i think I've never seen handled better by a, a white author than than is in Mason and Dixon. And the way that you kind of feel a release of tension almost palpably once Dixon's encounter with the slave driver in the next chapter happens, I think goes to show how he's sort of been planting these seeds along the entire book that this is all going to come to a head somewhere and, and building this tension within the reader as they navigate through the text that this is a problem and it needs to be solved and this is the closest thing we're going to get to a, to a solution in this book anyway, is this kind of explosion or an attempt at cathartic violence. Yeah, so I mean, on that note, let's, um, let's talk about that interaction. Um, so obviously, you know, as Will summed up, earlier you know this this slave driver was essentially trying to uh force upon dixon a the idea of of owning a person and mm -hmm. dixon attempted to just kind of you know no thanks the situation and and move on but um the slave driver just couldn't let that stand and and had to kind of keep pushing him and i i do there's a line before Dixon actually hits his boiling point that I, I really, um, really stuck with me. 
Uh, several times Dixon feels the need, strong as thirst, to get up, walk over to the fellow, and strike him. That the need, strong as thirst, is such an impactful line mm-hmm. that I, I stopped on that sentence and just kind of had to process it. Like, that is such a perfect way to write that feeling. You know, it's 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 a need, but it's not a need in the figurative sense. Like, this is a fundamental um, physical urge to strike this person. The, the, the hatred for this, this man is so palpable that it's, it's as strong as the urge to drink. I, I absolutely love that line. Um, but then, yeah, he, he, um, chides Dixon for, uh, or no, Dixon sees him, him yelling at one of the slaves about, you know, you cost me, um, a sale. You you fucked up my sale. You fucked up my day. You fucked up my business, and and that's what pushes Dixon over the edge. And he just absolutely rocks this dude. And I generally don't find myself rooting for violence in a story, <laughs> but holy crap, that was cathartic. Just yeah, that whole scene, the way it plays out, and when he's you know the guys you know don't hit me, and he starts talking about his kids. And he names two of them in Dixon's reaction is anymore is just so like you can feel the tension in that in that scene so well. And it's so it's so well handled. You know, I I, I don't want to make such a a a an emotionally and thematically heavy scene. I don't want to try to lighten it in any way. I, I think that it's just it's so well handled you know and it's it it feels real and it it feels right it feels justified well and i also you know speaking about like we normally don't have such a strong attraction to like these these points of violence or whatever but i also think that the opening of this section the paragraph that that pinchon writes about the slave driver is one of the best encapsulations of just how hateful someone has to be to choose to do what he does. Yeah. And I'll, I'll read the quote out just because it's, it's, a, it's a stunning quote, but it says on, on page 696, the driver's whip is an evil thing, an expression of ill feeling worse than any between master and slave, the contempt of the monger of perishable goods for his merchandise, in its tattered braiding, darkened to its lash tips with the sweat and blood of drove after drove of human targets, the metal wires worked into each lash, its purpose purely to express hate with and hate's corollary. To beg for the same denial of mercy should one day the first gambling that they may not be or that they may. Like, just, just the description offered of an implement of the slave trade. Not even the slave trade as a whole, but just this this one aspect of it and how for that alone to exist, disconnected from the rest of the entire industry expresses a, a supreme level of hatred that is is bone deep in the same way that some people would have to inanimate objects that are simply merchandise if they if they fail to work is mm-hmm. such a picturesque explanation of just how evil as an institution that is and then of course that quote ends with somewhat of a not necessarily spoiler, but like a taste of what's to come where it talks about what would happen if, if that tool was to be turned against its master. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's it's such a this whole section, the writing in it stands out as being the best of these three chapters. Maybe second only to the the sort of what if scenario that comes later. But there is there is a real feeling of sort of pinch on wanting to make sure that if a reader has not followed along with everything else in this book, that they at least grasp this. Because it is, it's certainly in the way that it's written, a bit more modern feeling to me. And that mm-hmm. yeah. just the way that the dialogue is structured and the way that, that, that it's actually written out, it feels like it's there to make sure you cannot miss what is happening. You have to, you have to see and, and understand what is happening here. I'm just going to say that I, I do think... Just a small note. I don't think that he was trying to sell Dixon a slave. I think he was just trying to piss him off to get attention. I think he was trying to to make a scene. I was gonna I was gonna point out that this guy does seem to be kind of in in a, in a classic like uh, movie way, like at like literally almost asking to get beat up, um, with like singling out Dixon, who you. I think that you know I I'm under the impression that you can look at Dixon and tell that he's a Quaker. I'm not 100% on that, but yeah, I, I think his clothing the, kind of gives him away. Yeah, it's the it's he specifically calls him out by his hat and then addresses him by friend. I, I think it's intentionally like, hey, you don't want a slave. I know you don't, but I'm going to tease you and try to get some argument going. Yeah, it definitely seems like I said he was asking for it. And then as Kate was saying, the kind of modern aspect of this, um, I let the coast know that I did have some stuff kind of loaded uh, for this section. And um, I've talked in past episodes about the Cambridge Companion to Thomas Pynchon. And uh, one of the scholars in that book uh, writes about this section and points out that the slave driver has uh, his children's names are supposedly modern. I believe it's Tiffany and Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not 100 percent. She links that with that being some type of joke, uh, which I, I think is completely wrong and not you know, not really necessarily true. And I also, you know, Jason, I think is a, a name that goes back pretty far. I'm not hundred percent on Tiffany. Um, but the, the inclusion of the supposedly modern names, at least according to this person. And again, she called it, she seemed to think that Pynchon was trying to make some type of joke in the middle of this section, which I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't pick up on that at all. Uh, it did kind of remind me of, uh, Philip K. Dick in his exegesis and all of his kind of crazy writings from the 70s uh, talked a lot about a concept called the empire never ended. Uh, and in the context of his writing and his his spiritual uh, craziness, I don't necessarily want to get into the weeds of that. <laughs> um, for the the Michael S. Judge, uh, Death is Just Around the Corner guy, I listened to one of his episodes and he was talking about how sad that whole episode in Dick's life is, you know, the fact that he spent like years uh, exploring his own delusions. But anyways, um, I, I've always found that phrase very evocative, the the phrase that the empire never ended. And I do think that the inclusion of at least possibly, according to the scholar, uh, modern names um, could speak to the fact that while I, I mean, there, yeah, slavery is still existent in, in the world today. I mean, the Saudi Arabian Royal family has slaves, um, there's human trafficking, which is more or less uh, the creation of human slaves. Um, you know, and human trafficking, as I think Vineland might get into some. I'm kind of blanking on that, but I. Um, 
Inherent Vice, Inherent yeah. Vice does, yeah. Um, you know, like, so what I'm getting at basically is, you know, like this kind of stuff, the, the objectification of, of people in terms of like viewing them as property, viewing them as lesser than, uh, the, these kind of practices continue today. Uh, they're not nearly as widespread as they might've been in the past, but you know, in, in, a like I said, you know, like the empire never ended, like the, these practices never truly have, have not truly come to an end yet. Uh, which I do think is perhaps an element of what Benjamin is getting at in this section. Yeah, I can see that. I, I I'm I'm curious about that Cambridge thing because yeah, Jay, I know Jason is a pretty old name that's been around for goes back to at least the Greeks. Yeah, yeah. And the other two, like Tiffany and Scott, were the other two, and I don't think those are necessarily newer names. So, yeah, I'm not sure what they're getting on about that with, but she used it as an example of Pynchon like using humor and and perhaps inappropriate or odd ways, which again, I just don't see in this section at least. I, I see a little bit of humor in the scene, but it's more in the, you know, it's asking any more little ones. It's, you know, the way that Dixon approaches the situation that's humorous. I don't see it in the names really. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, the, the part at the beginning of this section where they're, I think it's the beginning of the section where they're talking about how uh, family stories as they're passed down uh, through the years, um, that part is definitely at least somewhat comedic um, or meant to be not taken super seriously. Um, Cause I think we all, we've all experienced that kind of stuff where your, your dad tells you a story and then you tell it to somebody else and you might embellish it a little bit and add some kind of cooler aspects and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, so that, that is a section that I think is really crucial to this, really crucial to this chapter. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's not in the middle, but it's like a third of the way into it. In my mind, because it, it essentially situates it as saying, all right, look, this definitely didn't happen. Dixon never did any of this stuff. Dixon did mm-hmm. not steal a whip from a slave driver and whip him in the street and promise to kill him if he ever sees him again. However, it is in Dixon, or sorry, in Pinchon's mind, uh, exactly what, needed to happen and it's exactly what needs to happen to to convey what somebody like dixon would have actually been like right and as an extension of that i i where'd it go thought where did you go all right anyway but i i just i I find it really interesting the way that it's there's all of the, this is the capitulation of everything that that Cherry Coke has been talking about in terms of history and just telling stories. It is mm-hmm. this is the thesis statement that it's part of the common duty of remembering how we dreamed of and were mistaken in each other, which counts for at least as much as our poor cold chronologies. Yeah, and it kind of it kind of validates the idea that that Cherry Coke has probably been making up a lot of the random. Mm-hmm. more more magical elements of this story up until now for the purposes of of just telling an entertaining story but i do like your point there will i i hadn't necessarily considered on an intellectual level the fact that that just sort of validates the thesis that the book is sort of talking about you know who gets to tell history and and is it accurate when it's told and you know where where do these things change and how it's a good, great point and I'd, I'd like to take a, a short tangent, if that's okay with everyone, to talk about the fact that what's often 
said about uh, postmodern literature in general, and in particular Pynchon, is that um, they they want to try to like dissolve truth. They want to get rid of what's real. And in particular with Pynchon, there there is a focus in particular on the idea that this boundary line, right around the 1800s, from the late 1700s to the early 1900s, something happened to humanity that set off, set us off in a terrible track. And a lot of it, especially in this book, seems to be tied to this insistence on measurement and fact as supreme. And I think that this section does illuminate that Pynchon is not saying that precision is bad necessarily. He's not saying that telling history is something that, you know, should be taken lightly. What he's saying is that we need to recognize the humanity and not just the facts. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, to, to like sort of piggyback off of that and just spiral it out to to a statement about postmodernism more broadly, you know, which feels so dumb that we have to make, you know, justifications like this. I'm looking at you, Jordan Peterson, once again. Um, Come at is, is the fact that, to, to your point, modernism was basically just a statement of, of the facts. It was, you know, this, this, is what's, this is what's going on, and this is the result. You know, the, the Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, for poem about the devastation of world war one in in uh europe it's still creative and it's still weird and esoteric but it is essentially just about the reality that europe is devastated you know and and instead of looking at just the facts of of things as they are through a, a modern lens of, of writing literature the postmodernist writers oftentimes went yeah we know that that's the truth because we're all living in that world what is the effects of that and how does that affect the average person? And, you know, what can we put into literature that reflects back the experience of the average person as a result of the world as it is? That's really, you know, from my view, what a lot of these postmodern writers are working on. Not an idea that, that nothing is true and Marxism is the only correct way to live life. It's all, you know, it's all relative and nothing matters and you can do whatever you want. That's all the stupid modern critique of it. That again, I'm I'm looking at Jordan B. Peterson as the as the person to blame. <laughs> I will I will fight you. I will fight you and your aged body in the ring somewhere. I'd say I should cut that out, but he's not going to listen to this. We all no, know that. No. <laughs> so yeah, come on and get us. <laughs> Well, so moving back on to uh, the book, the the other section I wanted to bring up in chapter seventy two was the at the end of the chapter when when Mason has another visit from Rebecca, and I I really the the one part of it I mean the whole thing was really well done, and I think it's it's very important for his development um, as as Luke mentioned earlier, I really. I highlighted the last paragraph of that section. I just really enjoyed the the prose there. If we are a triangle, then I must figure as the unknown side. Dare you calculate me? Dead reckon your course in the wilderness that is now my home as, as my exile. Show by projection shapes beyond the meager prism of my grave. Do you have any idea of my sentiments? I think not. 
Mr. Dixon would much prefer you forget me. He is of beaming and cheery temperament, a boy who would ever be off to play. You were his playmate. Now that is over, and you must go back inside the house of your duty. When you come out again, he will no longer be there, and the dark will be falling. I wonder how much of these phantasmal visits from Rebecca Mason is getting is is really just internal. It's just him processing and trying to hold on to the the memory of her. And, and this is his kind of, because he doesn't, he, ha, I don't think he really ever had um, the, the ability to grieve properly. And I think this is, this is his sort of way of working through all of it and trying to put together what he's supposed to do going forward. When I think whether Rebecca is really there or it's some kind of internal sort of dialogue, it, the end result is what you're kind of talking about. Because you just back it up by two paragraphs from the quote that you read. You come across this one here that says, That other tract across the border, perhaps nearly everything, perhaps nearly nothing, is denied him. Is that why I sought so obsessive, obsessively death's insignia, its gestures and formulae, its quotidian gossip? All those awful days out at Tyburn, hours spent nearly immobile watching stone carvers labor upon tomb embellishments chip by chip. Was it all but some way to show my worthiness to obtain a permit to visit her, to cross that grimly patrolled line, that very essence of division? She only wishes me back in the stink of mills, mud and grease, hell clamor, landthorns all night, the people in subjection, the fouled wells of Painswick, Bisley Stroud, styling at home. Oh, was there no deliverance? She accosts him one night, walking the visto. Seems sad, doesn't it? She chuckles. Trust me. Mopery, there are regions of sadness you have not seen. Nonetheless, you must come back to our vale, round to the beginning, well away from the sea and the sailors, away from the You must leave Mr. Dixon's fate and attend to your own. Like, that, that reads so much like a moment of self-actualization. Of just mm -hmm. Mason finally realizing, is this, is this it? Like, that's what I've been doing this whole time. I used to lay in graveyards, just weeping, wanting to see my wife one more time, and 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 hoping that maybe I would just die so that that way I could be reunited with her. Right now, is that you know, is it was all of that just for nothing? Like, did I just need to process something? And he's kind of coming to the conclusion that that yeah, he has. As Rebecca tells him, he he has a fate that he has to attend to. Laying around, wanting to see her, you know, thinking that if maybe he's sad enough, he will honor her memory or or somehow properly mourn that. Um, it, it's all fruitless, and it, it comes to naught at the end. Like like she says, basically his 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 wife just tells him, "Oh, you think you're sad." You're not. There's there's regions of yeah. this emotion that goes that goes so far beyond what you're capable of. This is just some sort of, you know, self-flagellation that you're 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 doing here. You you have a life, you have a fate, you have all of that. You need to get back to it and it's time for you to leave Dixon to to his own fate, which I realize now at the beginning of the show I was jumping ahead to the next chapter with the whole thing with them deciding to go home, but I think that this conversation with Rebecca directly is kind of what pushes him to the edge of, 
I need to move on past her death, but not just that, but also I also need to break this emerging cycle of father and I need to go home and I need to be with my kids and I need to figure out what it is that I have to do to 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 give them the life that I didn't have when I mm-hmm. it's 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 such a beautiful scene and I think that yeah whether she's real or whether it's just some sort of imagined internal dialogue or internal process it, the end result is the same it's the catharsis that he's getting to in order to finally push through his his melancholic state he's been in since she died I think that's a really good summary of of what's going on there thanks for laying it out like that you're welcome so on to 73 this was I, I I think of these three chapters this this was my favorite and it's just such a as I said earlier, it's it's such a wild ride in such a short amount of time. And it does mm-hmm. have that kind of I don't remember who said it, it had that kind of montage feel, but it absolutely does. And it's it it's almost like it's a it's a self-contained like novella in in what seven pages, eight pages. Yeah. yeah and I like there's a part of sort of like a headcanon that, you know, Pinchon was writing the earlier sections when they were coming up to the warrior path. And then he was like, you know, that would almost be a more interesting book if they just kept, if they just kept moving forward. And yeah. then he just, he just kept thinking about what that would look like. I'll just, I'll indulge in it in a chapter. I'll just throw in kind of a yeah. montage of what this might be here. It's, um, well, and it's, yeah. it's such a cool move because it, you know, yeah. it, it, and it really, it, it really takes, um, I think a certain level of, of writer's courage to put that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to say like, this isn't how it ends. This is just how it could have ended. Right. And dangle that, that sort of that metaphorical carrot in front of the reader and say, you know, yeah, we, we could keep going. If you want to keep going, here's, you know, here's a little peek behind the curtain, but that's not what, that's not the story. That's not what we're doing here. You know? And it's, mm-hmm. It's I, I feel like as a um as someone who plays D D, this is kind of that that the culmination at the end of a campaign where it's like this is all the what ifs, like all the things that you guys didn't do, here's what you know, the the branches that could have gone out from there and, and how the, the story could have evolved from there, but that's not the story we told. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other the other interesting thing in how you've described it as this kind of indulgence or, or just sort of let me throw this out here is, is it also is somewhat of a test to the reader because we know that if they cross that path inherently it's not good it leads yeah. to the kind of spiritual death that we've been talking about for the past three episodes and will hasten the arrival of that through as will talked about i believe it was last week the 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 idea of discovery and of, you know, explanation taking away the, the inherent magic of something like je ne sais quoi. Um, so we know that as the readers, we don't, we shouldn't rather want that. It should be something that we acknowledge is bad in the long run for society or, or people or spirituality or whatever word you want to apply to it. But at the same time, we kind of want to see what that would have been like mm-hmm. <laughs> if if he would have just gone over it for the next 300 pages. Yeah. So it, it's, I mean, it, yeah, it, it offers some, some, somewhat of an interesting almost test to the reader. Yeah. Cause it does. It, it's, 
you're exactly right. It, you, we know the the sort of destruction and 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 um and and evil and and everything else dark that lies beyond crossing that line. But this chapter just felt so good to read, and yeah. it's it's that sort of indulgent feeling that you get from doing something that you know it's not necessary. It's not that it's terrible. It's but it's, you know it's not the right thing. But it's still just there's there's a there's a sense of enjoyment from from having it, and I just it's it's so well done, and it also has some of my favorite just writing in the in the mm-hmm. whole book. There's some beautiful prose in this section. Yeah, there's an interesting effect that this chapter has on me, at least. I, I'm curious if anybody else shares this kind of response to it. It feels to me, in a lot of ways, like this this chapter is sort of like a, a weird remedy within the poison of like the the post book hangover kind of thing mm. as it's been discussed online in the last few decades the the idea that you get to the end of a book and you just can't get over the fact that god i loved all those characters and i was enjoying <laughs> that so much and now it's all gone and something about this chapter to me really reminds you that hey all of this is bullshit none of this happened mm-hmm. and that's not to be negative, but instead to say, you can just sit there and think about what might have happened, and it's just as much a part of this book as what's on the pages, or in, in, in maybe not just as much, but in in the meaningful sense. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a book by Robert Coover, uh, who I think Kate might have mentioned before we started recording. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a book by Robert Coover that's called Huck Out West that came out 20 years after Mason and Dixon. Um, but Huck Out West is about the adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn uh, after long after the events of uh, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That does have some similarities with this chapter of Mason and Dixon that I, I do think that Coover is probably... I, I would assume Coover's read his pension and uh, as... I I do there there are some similarities between this chapter and Huck Out West, um, which just kind of it does seem to be kind of a postmodern thing to uh, continue old. I, mean, I think it's postmodern. I don't I don't know if there's much of a history of it um, beforehand, um, and I don't necessarily want to get into fucking fan fiction, but. Um, <laughs> Um, I think you guys, you guys get what I'm saying. Where like there is a yeah. kind of a, a modern trend to like for people to continue and uh, do pastiches or parodies of uh, classic stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'll fly off the handle if we talk about that for any <laughs> significant length. <laughs> I, I really do think that the this section works as a weird kind of. Like you said, Kate, a test for the reader and a good way to remind yourself the ways that it's not something that uh, we like, any of us like to think about the, the whole idea of determinism, the whole idea that we are not in control of our lives as much as we have choice, whether mm-hmm. or not you believe that. It's not a pleasant thing to think about, even if you believe in free will. You know, you still have to recognize that context shapes your choices. And the way that this book sets it up 
you, you can almost trick yourself into thinking, yeah, it's obvious, just don't cross the Great Warrior Path. It's bad. Everyone's telling you it's bad. This crazy Chinese shaman showed up and told you that, hey, this line you're digging, real bad. Uh, their college student helper was, you know, thinking basically the same thing. Their chef goes crazy. I mean, mm -hmm. the line they draw somehow enchants a mechanical duck. Like, mm -hmm. they are doing something big. They are doing something dangerous. But as you read the book, you forget that, like, they have reasons. Yeah. <laughs> reasons to do any of this stuff. You, <laughs> you Like, you kind of get sucked up in the narrative and, like, the idea of, you know, Mason being pathetic and not wanting to actually do the right thing. And Dixon being a good guy but not really having the determination to do what do to do the right thing most of the time and it, this chapter kind of fills out like yeah no people do these horrible things for really good reasons they would have their lives would have been incredible if they had discovered uranus and you know i trust frankly that pinchin <clears throat> excuse me i trust frankly that pinchin went through star charts and figured out where its position would have been and lined and then thought, well, you know, assuming they had a clear night this time of year, they would have been able to see it from this point in the line. Because I really do get the sense that this entire section was like another book that he cut down to this chapter. Oh, totally. So I, I it feels bigger than it is. And that that hugeness is terrifying because the hugeness that it is is like fame and fortune and power and like act like working hard every day for something you're passionate about and actually getting paid your dues. Mm -hmm. And that's a terrifying prospect because it tricks so many people into destroying their lives and so many others. Yeah, and and just as a, a quick side note on that, your your whole point about the fact that they are are doing this for a reason or or for, you know, a purpose. This this book is very interesting to read. Calvinist minister, I'll, I'll put that much out there, because um, the the whole kind of reasonings behind what you're doing and, and predestination and and free will and all of that is so integral to how this book is and and what it really is about from a standpoint of of its interaction with its main characters that it it, it has been a very interesting process to read the book given that life experience that I now have, which I did not have the first time I read the book. Um, and there is something in the idea that you are, you know, when you, when you operate from that predestination mindset, you are doing things because you believe that it's what you're supposed to be doing, but you're, you don't really ever have like the why or the how or the, the outlay of, of why it matters. And to a certain extent, that's the exact same position that Mason and Dixon are in over the of this book um you know we eventually are told in, in the last section of chapters that the 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 people behind the commissioning of the line or people behind the commissionings of these lines being drawn just in general are, are some order of people older than the jesuits that control the jesuit the jesuit represents their their interests or whatever it's it's clearly more of the pinchon capital t they but it as a as a book exploring the concepts of of predestination and, and free will or determinism and all of that. Um, it's been just such a treat to see that examined from 
what is not necessarily a religious viewpoint. There are allusions to religiosity in these pages for sure, but it is clearly not at the heart of what Sean is writing about. Um, not super related to what you said, Will, but did make me think of that. I did. I do think everything you said there was was incredibly eloquent about what this chapter represents. This is uh, maybe a bit out of nowhere, um, but the part at the end where uh, the line becomes to, becomes a sea road, um, like some type of canal or river. Um, I actually haven't read uh, this series, but it did make me think of the River World series by Philip Jose Farmer. Uh, it's a series that I think was award-winning. It started with "Your Scattered Bodies Go," um, which it features a an afterlife uh, where every single human ever alive lives along a massive river. Um, that has you know, it's, it's all it, as the Mason and Dixon says. It, like I think Riverworld would also have like wharves, chandleries, inns, tobacco shops, green grocery stalls. Printers of news, dens of vice, chapels for repentance, shops full of souvenirs and sweets, all a sailor could wish. Indeed, many such will decide to settle here along the beacons. Uh, I would honestly be surprised if that isn't a river, a river world reference. Um, as I've said, you know, I mean, we've kind of traced a little bit of possible pension references to other sci fi authors, sci fi fantasy authors in this book. Um, and yeah, like I said, I'd be surprised if Pynchon didn't get that idea for that small part of that paragraph from that series. Um, the only thing I've read by Philip Jose Farmer is Riders of the Purple Wage, um, which is part of the Dangerous Visions anthology. And I believe it was a Nebula award winner, that novella that by Farmer. And that novella definitely has some Pynchon-esque aspects. Uh, it's very, very dense. Um, the language is very stylized. Uh, Farmer is, is not somebody that has a massive profile these days, but I could definitely see Pynchon being a fan of his. Um, and yeah, I don't. it's just a little bit too, too similar to me to be completely out of nowhere in terms of it, it not being a reference. Yeah, I I didn't clock that. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, to your scattered bodies goes really good. I haven't read the rest of that the, that series, but I would highly recommend at least reading that one. I think you'd like it. Yeah, I do own it actually, so I do need to read it. So uh, uh, this asking you guys this more than you know posing it for the audience, um, but it, I I have this weird fragment of memory that tells me that it was part or that that a bridge across the atlantic was a thing in the simpsons um, I, but i don't i have not seen very much of the simpsons i okay i as a huge simpsons fan specifically like seasons three through nine it definitely is not in there um okay. i have watched those episodes so many times i know for a fact it is not in there now it could have been something that came in later god knows the simpsons has done just about everything because they've been on for forever yeah there's um, that whole like south park uh simpsons yeah, did it simpsons, simpsons, did, it, simpsons yeah. did it um yeah. i wouldn't be surprised if it was something that came up in there or if it was just something that somewhere in pop culture that idea got floated <laughs> at some point 
It well, definitely it, sounds like some weird, like, World War II type, like, you know, like, thing that some idiot in the government would have been, like, you know, like, announcing in the, in the press that they're going to build a, a bridge or something. Yeah. Or With something another- that Rick Perry had a dream about. He's going to run utilities to Europe. <laughs> nah. Hey, with enough gumption and moxie, we can do it. <laughs> Six late superhighway. So, I mean, if you're such a big fan of like seasons, what was that, three through nine of the Simpsons? Three through nine. Yeah. I think we're safe on it not preempting Mason and Dixon then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have um, that time. Yeah, just I know for a fact that in Bojack Horseman, they go across the Atlantic. Oh, and... yeah, that, that joke is so funny. <laughs> and then there is a, there was, there were numerous real proposals and like attempts to do R&D to build a transatlantic tunnel but it doesn't seem like anybody actually thought of let's put up pontoons across the entire Atlantic Ocean without or it, and it got that at least it didn't get very far well there is a because I think we talked about during crying a block 49 how pension possibly worked on the Beaumark project which is something that the death corner guy gets into a lot but um I believe there's an aspect of that uh conspiracy theory slash like reality of like there being um cables connecting Europe and America possibly before like the official story um says there would have been and stuff like that. Um so I mean it's semi relevant to Pynchon's history at, at Boeing, I think possibly. Yeah, and furthermore, apparently Robert H. Goddard, according to Wikipedia, um was issued two patents um in pursuit of a transatlantic tunnel i do want to say i looked this up on google and there is something from from quora from 2018 where someone asked if we could actually build a bridge across the atlantic and just the first line i haven't even clicked on the link but just the first line of this is a standard road bridge across the atlantic would be almost impossible to construct ruinously expensive and wildly impractical (laughs) and that reads like a challenge to rick perry (laughs) <laughs> so i mean it just seems like one of those uh you know uniquely american things of like there's no reason to do it but that doesn't mean we shouldn't you know yeah we're all exactly. about should have not could have or could have not should have the bridge to nowhere yeah i think it's i think it's more valid of an idea than that objectively a failure of an idea but you know maybe if, that's if the simpsons exist. There was a thing in The Simpsons where they, at the tail end of an episode, they mentioned a bunch of, it was when they built the monorail and they talked about other stupid invention or stupid follies that the city embarked on, including an escalator that went to nowhere. And it literally just like rose up probably 30 or 40 stories into the sky and then stopped. But people were still getting on it and just falling off. I don't know. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. That um that Bojack Horseman bit I just remembered was actually a bridge to Hawaii. Uh, oh, was it Hawaii that they, that they built? Yeah, it was okay. it was a highway bridge to Hawaii. Driver. Somehow <laughs> that that came out of the spaghetti business. And it was a it was a divided highway too, so you couldn't turn around once you were on the bridge. You had to go to Hawaii to get back. In it for the long haul. Yeah, I think the calculations in that episode are correct, too, because Bojack is going to go there for, like, a weekend with somebody, and the actual drive time would leave them, like, six hours in Hawaii before they would have to turn around and go back. That's more than I would have expected, honestly. (laughs) I could be overestimating. It's been a while since I watched that show. 
well, sorry to take us so far off course there, but no, you know. that's <laughs> technically the Simpsons isn't off course I mean, considering he was on it. So I guess it's still in our, in our wheelhouse. You ha- you have made my mascara run though, from the callback to Rick Perry's stupid. Oh God. Uh, anyway. Um, was there anything else we wanted to talk about on uh, chapter 73? I I really love the way that in I, I, I this is annoying. It was one of those things where I heard it in the audiobook and I loved it and I didn't immediately go find which page it was on, so I can't find it again. It's either in this or the previous chapter. Um there's this talk of the way that like even when they turn back, they continue across west um and it, it like burns a like a, a, it sears something into America's character, um, and I, I just think that it's it's a wonderful uh, representation of uh, what's it called, manifest destiny. Mm. I like that you brought that up because I do think that, and I think we've touched on this before that people, I, I think the general consensus among most of the American population pull a random person and ask them what they know about the Mason and Dixon line. The general response is going to be that it divided the North and South, you know, for the, in regards to the civil war. And I, th- I think what Pinchon gets at in, in this book is, is that the line was so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And that we've essentially forgotten about that. And and everything that that this line, as short as it was in the grand scheme of things, um, it still has a huge impact on American history, on America as a society and a civilization. It it reverberates so deeply within the country itself, and it's wild that so many people only know it for that small part of of what really it wasn't even. It's not really a good explanation of what that line is. Yeah, but if you're gonna think about it that way, then you have to get all highfalutin and think about symbolism and like yeah sociology and other nonsense. <laughs> it's too complicated for the yeah. likes of Jordan Peterson to comprehend. <laughs> I'm starting to feel bad for the guy. <laughs> well, um, let's let's go into <laughs> our funny parts. I think for me, I highlighted a couple of things, but I've been kind of thinking on it more and more uh, as we've gone through here. It's a very, it's a, it's literally two sentences at the end of, of chapter 72. On the last visit to New York at the very end, waiting for the Halifax packet, they dash all about the town, looking for any face familiar from years before, yet they are berated for their slowness at corners. It's, I mean, it's New York summed up in two sentences. <laughs> it's pretty great. It's, it's clear that this is around the time the Pinchon had moved over there from California. Just got to find any, any, any reason at all to make fun of people over there. Mm-hmm. Like that or the line about people retiring to Long Island. <laughs> I think my most funny part is um, also at the end of Chapter 72. It's the, the part I pointed out earlier where... <clears throat> Uh, thus ends my restless progress in America. Mm-hmm. And then Dixon has been reading over his shoulder. What was mine then? Restful. It's not like super funny, but I do. It does kind of make me chuckle and it is just kind of, you know, kind of cute and kind of vaguely comedic. It's yeah. Very funny. Yeah. That would have been mine as well. 
you thief. Yeah. <laughs> I did also like that Armand was concerned that the duck was doing something autoerotic. Yes, that was great. Yeah. That I part. I forgot about that. I, I had to stop for a second and kind of compose myself just because... The way it's the way it's uh, it's written is just so. Uh, at, at which Armand runs in looking anxious. The duck is doing something autoerotic now. And it, autoerotic is italicized. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, oh, I, I, I tried to fit that into the summary, but then I realized how absolutely unimportant it is. So, I mean, <laughs> I would have supported that decision. I would have been fine. No, with absolutely, it. but you know. Well, the, the funniest single part of this section to me, and it's the scene that it's in is not really funny. I mean, I think it is a humorous scene, but it's mostly like really dark. Um, it's on page 711 where we're talking about um, a couple that got together in the throes of westering passion, essentially. And the way that the the father of the groom hates the bride and vice versa. Um, the mother of the... The mother of the wife calls her specifically 15 stone of unredeemed slut. My gracious, <laughs> just look at you. The, just that is one of the most searing insults I've heard in a very long time. It's a pretty rough one. It is. I, seriously. It's got to be, and it it it, it ha it's hard enough to write a really good insult, but to write it in in seventeen hundreds vernacular mm -hmm. is even harder. And to make it funny and and impactful is uh, yeah, it's great. And, and as a side note on the duck uh, thing again, that that part made me especially laugh because now seeing like jealous or potentially bereft that this that this duck is no longer interested in him romantically that what <laughs> used to be like a plague on his house has now left him and almost it's like he's ducks say don't you remember ducks mate for life and, well clearly not because now i'm <laughs> now i'm all alone oh armand what a character Really, it is so good. I would love to know just the thought process that led to the creation of Armand character. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let's do quotes. Um, obviously, Will's going to go last, so who wants to try and steal from him first? Uh, my quote is probably the the one that Kate read out about the evilness of the uh, the whip, which I can read mm. again. I guess let me try. Let me find it real quick. That I I love that part. Great. Yeah, the driver's whip is an evil thing, an expression of ill feeling worse than any between master and slave, the contempt of the monger of perishable goods for his merchandise, and its tattered braiding darkened to its lash tips with the sweat and blood of drove after drove of human targets. The metal wires worked into each lash, its purpose pur purely to express hate with and hate's corollary. And goes on from there, but yeah. That's a great, yeah. It really That's is. A great part. I also had my quote stolen, Cody, um, when you read out one of the sections <laughs> in the slave driver passages. Um, Jeez. So I uh, very rapidly decided to go to chapter 73 
um, just to pick out one of the just sort of interesting aspects of, of this chapter as a whole. Um, one week they encounter a strange tribal sect based upon the worship of some celestial appearance the congregation can see. Hungry to know more about the beloved, ignoring the possibility of a negative result, recklessly do they prevail upon the gazers to search science instruments of God, and having found its position to determine its motion, if any, it turns out to be the new planet, which a decade and a half later will be first the Georgian, and then as Herschel, after its official discovery, and more lately as Uranus. The lads, stunned, excited, realize they've found the first new planet in all the untold centuries since gazing at the stars began. Here, at last, is the career maker each has dreamed of. At differing moments and degrees of faith, all we need to do is turn, cries Mason, turn eastward again, and continue to walk as we ever have done to claim the prize for the first time. We may forget any obligations to the sky, for praise God, his ways have range. We need never work again. Tis to the mug's game and the fool's errand. Tis a royal entrance at life's redotto. Tis a Copley medal. I I really like that paragraph for a number of reasons. One, I really like this this way that it begins, where it says, "One week they encounter a strange sect based upon the worship of some celestial appearance. None but the congregation can see." I like how that is an inverse almost of the conversation that Mason and Dixon have with the the native guides that they have, where when asked who their gods are, they and the horizon they ask me, he just points up, and now that they've sort of breached the interior, so to speak, of the they imagine they'd get to, they encounter a, a tribal sect that also worships gods that are up. In this case, it's a planet. Um, and so I like that kind of inversion in these chapters. I, I also like the fact that there is something about this section of them finding this brand new planet and that their first thought afterwards is not oh my god there's another planet what a marvel of nature you know what what a revelation it is oh my god we never have to work again yeah this is going to be you know medals and awards and uh we're going to be famous and all of that it really speaks to a lot of the sort of um resource plundering that colonialism does and that we kind of talked about in the very very early chapter book and how we sort of talked about the fact that mason and dixon kind of see what the east india or dutch east india company is doing as evil and they say it is wrong and sort of darkness that we back in those chapters but here they're no different they discover something out in the untapped resource of, of another world they're, they're not familiar with that is being worshipped by natives of that world first thing they're going to and find some way to use it for personal gain you know maybe it doesn't have to do with slavery or maybe it doesn't have deforestation or destruction of of an actual land but it is one of these examples of how pushing into the untapped world explaining away what is there and doing so at the behest of case the royal society or just any sort of industrialized thing will oftentimes just lead to the same result and 
that it, it speaks to something in all of humanity. Maybe Mason and Dixon didn't see uh, any justification for the terrors that were happening, you know, in Cape Town and in St. Helena and all of that. But they were able to do something that certainly adjacent when the right motivation came up as well. I think it's 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 a easily overlooked paragraph, um, mm-hmm. but it is, is one that speaks to the incredibly dense chapter that 73 really is. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And mine actually is from just before that. Um, it is uh, descending great bluffs. They cross the Mississippi, the prehistoric mounds above having guided them exactly here by an influence. Neither can characterize more than vaguely, but whose accuracy is confirmed by their star observations as nicely as the micrometer Anonius will permit. They stay at villages of teepees where Mason as usual behaves offensively enough to require their immediate departure at a quite inconvenient time, too, for Dixon and his maiden of the day, who have both been looking forward to a, new, a few private moments. Instead, the astronomers spend the rest of their day running from the angry villagers, and only by fool's luck do they escape. They subsist upon roots and fungi. They watch lightning strike the prairie again and again for days, and fires rage like tentacles of a conscious being, hungry in a roar. They cower all night before the invisible thunder of bison herds, smelling the animal dust, keeping ready to make the desperate run for higher ground. They acquire a sidekick, a French Shawanese half-breed renegado named Von Goli, whose loyalty is only is to Mason and Dixon, though, like the Quaker in the joke, they are not, sure, not so sure of him. When they happen across an adventurer from Mexico in the ancient city he has discovered beneath the earth, where thousands of mummies occupy the streets and attitudes of living business embalmed with gold divided so finely it flows like gum, it is Von Goli, with his knowledge of herbal formulae, who provides Mason and Dixon with the velocity to avoid an otherwise certain dissolution. Um, I, I just, I, I mentioned earlier, I just love some of the prose in this chapter, and that's part of it. It's just, it's just a great example of, of his strength as, as a writer and, and mm-hmm. his use of, of, of specific words and the way he puts his sentences together and, and the way that he constructs every paragraph. I, I remember, I don't remember who said it at some, I read some article somewhere where someone mentioned that Pinchon writes his, his prose almost like mathematics. Everything has a very specific place and purpose and it's meticulously calculated to have the most impact in the space allotted. And I, that's just, I think, a prime example of that. Yeah, so I, I, I escaped unscathed from <sighs> that barrage of attempted thefts because <laughs> I, I was heartily considering every single one of those. Thank you very much. However, <laughs> I will go for uh, uh, starting on page 706 and then going to the bottom of the first paragraph on 707. Longer sights, easier grades, wider night skies as the landscape turns inside out with groves upon the prairie now the reverse of what glades in the forest were not so many chains ago. Far less axe work being required, soon the axemen are down to stig alone, who when asked to, becomes a one-man assault force on behalf of the astronomers. The music, from some source invisible, is resolutely merry, no matter what it may be accompanying. One late autumn, instead of returning from the co- returning to the coast, the astronomers will just decide to winter in, however far west it is they've got to. 
And after that, the ties back in to Philadelphia and Chesapeake will come to mean that much less, as the pair, detached at last, begin consciously to move west. The underlying condition of their lives is quickly established as the need to keep, as others, a permanent address, a perfect latitude. No fixed place, rather a fixed motion, westering. Whenever they do stop moving, like certain stars in Chinese astrology, they lose their invisibility and revert to the indignity of being observed and available again for earthly purposes. I mostly just really think that's a beautiful passage. It is. But I really, I, I do truly love the 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 enmeshing of these contradictory ideas between uh, things which are only visible when they're still versus when they are in motion versus the kind of you know the the, the gradient version of that in this form of Vokansen's duck. I, I I love the return of that, and I love the way that it feels true in some sense. That, that as long as they are not, you know, measuring something, as long as they are not working to, to draw a line, they seem to become out of place. That's a great, yeah, that's a... I felt like I wanted to add something to that and my, my brain just stopped. No, that's great. Um, I... I, again, just these these last three chapters are so, um, just so well done. Yeah, you were just bowled over by Will's explanation that you just I lost was. all ability to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I, I get unless anybody has anything else, um, we can we can wrap things up here. This I think after last week, it's it's a little uh, earned shorter episode. Yeah, thanks for everyone who sits through uh through three hours worth of. Yeah. Oh, we we totally forgot the most pinch on part. I'm I am sorry. Thank you for catching me on that. Will, um, what was everyone's most pinch on part of these chapters? I, I think the seventy three, the montage, yeah. and what that represents, yeah. and just the decision to put that into the book, um, would would definitely stick out to me as probably the most pinch on part of the chapter. Totally agree. I think mine is that quote that we went over about um, how America, um, sh how slavery should have never happened in America. Mm. Um, I do think it's interesting that that seems to kind of come to Dixon organically. Um, we, we in modern times um, talk, you know, all the stuff about the founding fathers and all the stuff about freedom that would have come after um, this, that Dixon saying that, um, so Dixon seems to kind of picked up on the inherent, uh, possibilities and kind of the inherent freedom of America before it was put down into words. And, I'm going to have to go with, um, the duck's autoerotic. <laughs> no, that's close though. In, 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 in revolt against two of you choosing an entire chapter, like, like oh, I, see. I see we're being attacked mm -hmm. now. Um, I am going to revolt by choosing um, the the choice of phrase. It is one of the laws of springs, which is you know, it's you know a mechanical pun on the idea of bending people past their mm -hmm. <laughs> metaphorical breaking point. Um, but also, like you know, 
the the whole term of labeling a, a an uprising as a spring of some sort would have kind of come into vogue around you know Pynchon's height of fame and i i just see i think that you know right at the end of the 20th century you know referring to a possible slave revolt as the law of springs it's pretty yeah resonant with that to me yeah well will's already declared war on with his royal house <laughs> against me and brett's royal houses over the dixon versus mason french accent things in revolt it's a surprise we haven't even finished mason and dixon we can't have a schism on, on the show <laughs> too bad i will not stand for any of this <laughs> Well, now we do have uh, our email from Brett. I was okay. So before we get into this, I have to say I was thinking about this earlier today. I'm going to miss these. Like genuinely, I'm going to miss getting these emails from Brett every week. Um, it's it really and truly has been something I have looked forward to. After every episode gets published, I am like constantly checking the email to see did Brett get back to us to break it back like i really and truly appreciate that brett has taken the time to do all of this and to provide us with so much information and so much context and has done this all just out of the same passion he shares for this book that we do so i know we say this every week brett but really and truly thank you and and we'll thank you more again when we have you on next week yeah it's 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 very cool that that Brett listens to our podcast. I think, and, and as mm-hmm. early as as he started listening, um, there being a sort of an outgrowth of the subreddit, a certain standpoint of meeting people like him. And and you're right, it's 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 always been really cool to get these sent in. Um, also, incredibly quickly. I don't know how fast you listen to our podcast, Brett, but <laughs> it seem it seems like uh, it really is at the top of list on the weekend which i appreciate that's very nice um i frankly find it concerning (laughs) will's developing a contrarian sentiment i think over the course of uh, this episode (laughs) dixon has leached out onto me (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah it all of the information you've you've given us um has been excellent and so we, we do have another email from him, of course, um, in which he, he began his email by uh, explaining his love, Dr. Pepper, um, which I agree, it, it is a great product. I, I won't read your entire write-up there. But, um, you know, if Dr. Pepper wants to sponsor the show, I'll be happy to read out an ad for them. Um, he does have a great line here, though. It says, Sean, ingredients, and yet completely unique and authentic itself. Uh, it's a good it's a good description of both Dr. Yeah. and Thomas Pinchon. Um, he then goes on to say, I also love the writing in these episodes. The discussion really captured a lot of what I love about the novel in fits and starts of Mason and Dixon the course of 600 plus pages. Minor tidbits. One, Ice the Ferryman is almost certainly an ancestor of Gabriel Ice in Bleeding Edge. Gabriel has taken the capitalist ideology of his great, 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 great something to its extreme. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that, um, but that does make a lot of sense. Very excited for when we get to uh, to Bleeding Edge, by the way. That's one of my favorites of his. 
When the duck mentions Voltaire, that's a real historical quote, quoted almost exactly in the novel. Voltaire really wrote that in the letter the novel mentions. <laughs> that's pretty insane. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know really what to make of that being <laughs> real. Um, given, given the way you wrote out that point, I feel like I can't believe that that's a real thing either. Uh, lastly, we have there's quite a lot of is it okay to be a novel? Very true. But that's a big part of my read on episode 70. Tox is one of the several characters in the novel who appear mad, but is also spouting a lot of truth. See also Halagast and Zhang. I think he's off to the wedge because it's rational and thus magic space. Tox is becoming some kind of mythic hobo, and he can perhaps summon a golem. The badass that is it okay to be a Luddite argues people. One of the things I love about Pinchon is how much his books appreciate people also recognizing be exploited and then used for genuinely ugly purposes. You're absolutely right about the last five chapters of Is It Okay to Be a Luddite in it. Um, I would almost recommend that for the last 15 to 20 chapters that we've gone over, it would be, it would be listeners to read Is It Okay to Be a Luddite and the Far Invisible. I think a lot of that can help people fill in not just some of what he's trying to get at in these chapters, but also just sort of more of kind of Pinchon's worldview and how that relates to why this book is written the way that it is. As well as the ice shirt by William Perrin. Um Then he goes on to say, looking forward to chatting with you next week. I'd love to join the ice shirt in your space. I, would, I think we would all love to have you on that. Um, I have to finish the books of Jacob first, which has a ton of Mason set largely contemporaneously with the novel, though half a world away. Right. Yeah, and then we got uh, two different uh, comments slash tweets about the podcast. The first one comes from Plesum89 on Apple Podcasts. Uh, right along to most of Mason and Dixon, please do against the day next. Um... Thank you for listening along to us. Um, I guess we're not, I don't think we're ready to reveal what book we're doing next. Uh, I think it might be a week or two. Yeah, Yeah. it might be a week or two before we do that. Um, And then Painterhead on Twitter tweeted, or I guess on X, X'd. I hate that new name. (laughs) I hate that new name. I'm not even on there and I hate it. Come back Elon Musk. I'll take you on too. You yeah. and Jordan Peterson. <laughs> That's right. Cage match. Uh, anyway, so digging this companion podcast for my slow read of Mason and Dixon by the folks at Pension Pod. Uh, we appreciate it. Glad you're having a good time with this companion podcast. Um, I do personally really like listening to podcasts alongside of reading stuff, especially I've done that a lot with Gene Wolfe novels because they're so complicated and so elusive, uh, elusive with an A, not an E, but, um, but yeah, we appreciate it. Uh, we always appreciate reviews and comments and tweets and all of that. So thank you all. Yeah. Um, really, really appreciate it. I just want to make it clear for anybody who, who just because, you know, you didn't hear me and together on the episode we had him on before damn motorcycles um i i am joking i make jokes but 
but uh, I do really I echo everything Cody said about the value of the emails we get from Brett. And I, I, I really do not know how we're going to deal with not having them in the future. So, yeah, thanks. So on that note, uh, next week is our wrap up on part two with Brett. He will be joining us and we will be peppering him with questions about uh, all of the chapters that we've gone over and, and getting his insights on everything and just having another uh, really fun conversation as we did with the uh, part one. And so we're, we're all looking forward to that. And um, if any listeners have any questions that they want us to bring to Brett, uh, send them our way and we will be happy to include them. Um, we will be recording that episode on the 24th. So if you do have a question, please get it to us before then so that we can include it. And um, thanks again for listening. We really appreciate it, everybody. Bye. See ya. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening. I did right. I did put the uh the ad read in there. I saw that, yeah, that's that's great. <laughs> I'm gonna let the dog out real quick, one sec. All right. Uh yeah, Kate, if you want to go ahead and, and do your read there. Sure. I was I was thinking NPR voice on this one, but I I was I was also wondering if you guys had any thoughts a more entertaining way to read from a standpoint of what it is. Uh, I don't I mean, NPR is a good, a good go-to. Yeah. I, whenever I read any kind of these, like, uh, legal representation ads, there's a guy, and I, I'm sure this guy exists in other cities too, but in here in South Texas, there is a guy, there's actually two of them, and they're as annoying as the other. They yell <laughs> at you the whole commercial. It's just yelling about like, are you injured in a, in a car accident? Blah, blah. And it's the, you know, the new ambulance chasers where it's just, you know, yeah. everything is, is they need you. But every single fucking one of them has their phone number is just the same number seven times. And it's half the commercial <laughs> is them saying the number four or the number eight, 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 eight. It's the absolute worst. And that's like, that's the other thing I'm, but I don't want to do a commercial where you're just yelling at, at the listeners to open the episode. Yeah, you do, don't want to, do, you don't want to do learner and row operate in Texas. No, no. Okay. The, the guys I'm thinking of, there's, um, uh, God, I can't even think of his name now. I can see his dumbass face because it's on all the billboards around here. Um, there's also a guy who his name is Jim Adler, and he just walks around with a sledgehammer, screaming that he's the Texas Hammer. I have um, seen those billboards. <laughs> I've seen yeah. those ads on YouTube. The billboards are even weirder because they don't have any context. It's just him holding a hammer, and it just says the Texas Hammer or injured, where it looks like. He's the one responsible for hurting someone, and he's just letting you know that that happened. There's a there's a pest company, pest control company in Albuquerque that just puts giant 3D sculptures of insects on the boards. That's, that's all it is. They, they like, finally started putting their logo on it, but that's like King of the Hill, like Dale Gribble level. Yes, it is. Shit. Jeff Davis, that's one of the guys. He's the four, 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 four. God, I hate uh, the fact that I'm even saying it.
four, 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 four. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so annoying. Are you in need of comprehensive legal help? Be it legitimate, qualitative work, or the kind of help you only ask a relative for, sir. That's, no, that's exactly not the yeah, right vibe. Like, yeah. But no, I don't. Yeah, that, I, I don't think that's the right vibe. Also, Cody, I thought you were going to put a robot version of my voice saying goodbye at the end of last I, episode. Yeah, I, I was. I meant to. I was so prepared for that, and then when it was just dead silence, I was just lost it. Laughing. Here's, here's the thing is I, I played with it for a little bit and yeah. I got it to do this like this stretched out kind of thing. But what it made me think of was in Zodiac when he called the police department and he said bye and he said it in a real dead ass creepy way. It yeah. sounded more like that and it, it made me uncomfortable. So I was like, I can't. I even so would just, just I even would have just said just do like a text to speech, just like yeah. basic robot voice. What I could, I can go back and re-edit it. I would, the other thing I thought about doing was was cutting out like ten of the last times you've said bye and just backing all of them end to end. So it's just like ten quick succession. <laughs> it sounds like a buffer overload or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that would almost be funnier. So I might, I might do that and just like re-upload it. Or no, do that for this episode. I could, yeah, that'll work. I could do you, it. You, you didn't, there was no goodbye on the last one. It took so a whole one... week for the buffering <laughs> to catch up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll do it. Oh, man. So are we going with NPR voice for the... Going, are yeah. you in need of comprehensive help? <laughs> are you out of your mind? <laughs> well, I'll help you find it. <laughs> Oh man. Okay. Uh, maybe go like a little harder edge than NPR, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't go too far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So someone, like just, someone who thinks he's making a really good point. Yeah, like yeah. a Joe Rogan guest. <laughs> oh Jesus! Like a really enthusiastic Joe Rogan guest. Five. Are you oh, in need man. of comprehensive legal help? Yeah. Okay. I, I Bro, do you know what that. the system is doing to you? Do you have any idea what's going on in California? Yeah, how did we all land on a strong California <laughs> accent? I don't know. Because <laughs> that's, that, that's the demographic for that show. I guess, yeah. I suppose so, even though he's in Austin. <laughs> yeah, God, I forget about that. Ugh. Yep. All right. Do we, do we like that reading, or should I do another one? I thought it was great. I, I worry a little bit that it sounded a, a little bit more like Alex Jones freaking out about somebody he's afraid of. <laughs> but then you kind of turned it around with the costume party's delivery, so I, I'm, I like it. I don't think it was... It, there wasn't enough uh, of a, a gruffness to make it Alex Jonesy. I could do an Alex Jones voice if we wanted Ooh, to go that far. I, I, I want to take do. it that far. Like, Ladies and gentlemen, are you in need of comprehensive legal help? <laughs> are you in need? <laughs> Be a legitimate, qualitative worker, the kind of help you only ask a relative. Me and, uh, me and a friend one time uh, dropped acid and watched uh, Alex Jones like squat, like with like videos on YouTube, but like his face was squashed. Oh my God. If, like, so he had like a massive forehead and like his face was really small. And like. <laughs> It was one of the like I couldn't stop laughing. Like I fucking, I fucking love that shit. Like if you view him as a comedian, which is hard to do these days, I get that. <laughs> but if you view if you view him as a comedian, it is really funny. See, I have I, to go ahead. I, 
I once, uh, you know, on, on the about midway through an acid trip, me and some friends sat down and designed like a, a torture complex, kind of like Guantanamo. <laughs> okay. I think, I think that it might be less toxic than watching Alex Jones on acid. I don't know. I, I mean, uh, I... <laughs> I have a habit of watching fucked up shit on acid. Like I, I watched, uh, I was alone one time and I dropped acid and I watched, uh, what's the, um, shit, I'm blanking on the name. The, the Aronofsky fucking drug movie. Requiem, Requiem for a I was alone and I watched that on acid uh, and I watched it and I actually had a good time. Um, the acid no, kind of like did. I did, I did actually. And I, the acid kind of like let me like let it go really quick afterwards, too. I've seen I that movie exactly that. twice and it was enough. Like, yeah, I watched it, it once so hard. The first time I watched it, I was alone also. And like, I had, I literally had a shower afterwards. Um, it's like, a rough one, man. And the second time, I actually had a good time. I mean, it is, Jesus. it is like really like it had me <laughs> sitting there like, God, I need to never do drugs again. I need to like clean up my life and and everything. I'm sorry. And then, yeah, and then I, 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 I just, I, I have a reputation just, for doing shit like that. The juxtaposition of I watched that's, Requiem for a Dream followed by It Was a Good Time. That's crazy. <laughs> it's really hard for me to process. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying, though? It's, it's a very, no, like... No, I do, I do, I do. It's yeah. a very intense movie, and it was made that much more intense by the hallucinogens. Great use of two hours. <laughs> I, I will say, I do agree that Alex Jones, like, that is some pretty dark stuff to watch if you're... Just uh, for any reason. But yeah. there, is a, there is a compilation... Of every time over a period of years that Alex Jones used the phrase, I'm not bragging. And that is one of the funniest videos on the Internet, because every single time he says, I'm not bragging, the next thing he says is fucking insane. I want to share with y'all, there's a uh, I guess he's he's a songwriter. He's a comedian. He does comedic stuff too especially like starting with the pandemic and he wrote what is essentially a bon iver song full of alex jones quotes oh dear <laughs> oh and yeah i've seen like, this repeatedly i've watched this video because it's so <laughs> goddamn funny yeah and then he's got a kanye one for um yeah kanye does, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that guy he's a like his actual music like his non-comedy stuff is really good but his comedy stuff, I think, is even better, and he's really leaned into it. Very true. So this this Alex Jones song, which is wonderful, thank you, by the way. Yes, it is. It has reminded me of another stupid thing a friend showed me on LSD. It was a supercut of all of the uh, national Bolshevist things that Tucker Carlson had said on his show. Set Interesting. To, like a... Uh, like happy hardcore music <laughs> with like uh cor- like corrupting graphics as it goes along with like a smiley face coming over the top of it all it was um i i i i, I thought it was pretty fucking funny yeah i'll have to I see if I, if you have that link uh send it yeah, i'd, I'd there like to see that a couple versions now let me see if i can find it i've got a oh here it is alex jones isn't bragging Uh, 
I heard. Okay, so I've also. I don't remember where I saw this, but there was a conspiracy, and it's perfect because it's Alex Jones. There was some theory floating around that Alex Jones was was Bill Hicks. That Bill Hicks didn't really die, and he just like disappeared <laughs> for a while and came back as Alex Jones. And I, I can't like my brain can't make that. Like I, I, I the only connection I think is the fact that they're both in Texas and that's where it stops because they're they nowhere even close similar. to the same age. They kind of look similar and they yell a lot, but Bill Hicks actually had important things to say and wasn't a raging asshole. I just hate the fact that he was conflated with Alex Jones. Yeah, that's a, I mean, I guess when Bill Hicks is like yelling, he's kind of similar vocally to Alex Jones, but um, yeah, that's, that's a strange one. I, I did finally finish Underworld. Um, that was really good. The The way that people responded to Underworld is really weird. Because, like, you, you look at, you know, a, a similar book from kind of a similar author that came out in a similar period of time. You know, there there was, like, against the day. It was, you know, close to mm-hmm. 10 years later. But, you know, it, it... Like, with Against the Day, everybody just kind of read half of it and all the reviews were like well it's a little scattered but it's probably pretty good and it really seems like underworld did not get the benefit of the doubt on that yeah that's a good that's a good point but i also feel like a lot of delilah's books outside of like white noise libra and like mao too don't get the credit that they're due like just generally him as a writer seems to not get um, a lot of the credit that, that is that is due to him. That is something I've noticed with, especially with, with bigger books like that. And, and Against the Day, too, I noticed that a lot of the, the reviews that I read of that, like the professional critic reviews, it was, yeah, they read like half of it and then just it basically, you know, farted out a, a review of it based on the half of it that they read and, and presupposing that they could parse out what was going to go on for the, the back half. Um, I mean, it seems like a, a, I hate to say common practice among literary critics, but I, I see it unfortunately often where they, it, it's clear they either, they, they kind of dance around the fact that they didn't read the whole thing or they, in some cases will explicitly say like, you know, I read part of this or half of it or whatever the case may be. And, you know, this is what I thought of it. I think that trend has become more common with, with a lot of the, the YouTube reviewers i don't want to name names particularly but i i've seen a lot of people that do reviews on youtube that'll you know they either didn't read the whole book or they barely even read any of it and they're doing a review on it and i I just can't work out how you can do that Uh, yes yes i believe what you're referring to is the yassification of d and f culture whoa What what if my brain, it just, God, that hit me like a train. too. Yeah. The yossification of DNF culture. As a a tangent that that we'll wrap back around, I promise. Um, Kate, were you here when I made my rant against the recognitions? No. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that at some point. Because I saw that, it, <laughs> that the recognitions was on your list of uh, bonus episode ideas. 
Um, suffice <laughs> it to say, I do not like that book, but it's not because I think it's bad. I just think that William Gaddis is kind of an asshole. Um, but point point I'm bringing up is that uh, there was a book called Fired the Bastards that you should take a look at, Cody. Okay. Uh, somebody uploaded it in full as like a web 1.0 website that's horrible, but it's totally readable. And it was a short book length review of the reviews of the recognitions. Okay. They ascertained <laughs> that something like 90% of them had not finished the book. And most of them hadn't even gotten basic facts right in their review. Interesting. That basically the point was that it, the, the, I believe um, Fire the Bastards came out in the early 70s. And the point of it was to say, all right, look, this book is mostly about how shitty literary criticism is, if it's about any one particular thing outside of artistry. And all of these people did exactly what the book said was going to happen to the book. That is to say, um, a bunch of critics skimmed over the first hundred pages, talked mm -hmm. to each other, agreed on what the facts would be between the bunch of them, and then wrote bullshit. Amazing. So it's been going for at least seven yeah. years. I mean, I'm, I'm not above DNFing a book. I, you know, if it's not hitting me right or I'm just not getting into it, I will absolutely just put it down because I don't have the time to finish a book that I'm not enjoying. But you're not writing a fucking review that you're getting Exactly. That's the thing. I will explicitly say, like, I did, I just straight up didn't finish this book, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Or I can at least talk about, like, the part I read and appreciate, you know, parts of it for its, its structure or its prose or something like that. But I can't, I don't think you can comment on the the themes and content of a book without reading the whole of the book i mean i i'm the kind of person who refuses to to not finish a book that isn't like absolutely torturous like as long as i can keep on reading it i will finish a book and i will just be mad at it at some point i can't do that but it's it's for me it's a matter of basically refusing to believe like it's it's 100% the case that I don't see anything wrong with stopping reading a book you're not enjoying. I'm, there's no hidden judgment against anyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it really is for me. It, it, feels, it feels paltry to, 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 to say and believe what you just said, that you, you can't have an opinion of a book. Um, and then to also say midway through reading it, to say, I do not like this book. Because I have had, I've read so many books that I did not enjoy until like the last 60 pages or something that just suddenly flipped it all on its head for me. And that's just a me thing. It, I, I'm weird like that. Sure, but sure. It's, <laughs> that's, that's how I approach books. So when I see people talking about like, oh, I didn't finish these like 50 books or a book needs to grab me within 20 pages, it just makes no. me feel fucking insane. That yeah, I 100% agree. Like that whole like it has to grab me within X amount of pay. Like no, I can't. I've read plenty of books that I wasn't really into until the end, like you said, and then it you know I it kind of all hits at the end. Um, I'd, typically I'd say with like <clears throat> more than half of the books I I DNF, I will come back to them. Um, I am. My wife pointed out to me the other day. I'm I'm very much a mood reader, so I tend to try to pick what I want to read based on 
kind of what I'm feeling at the time. So a lot of times when I, when I stop, it's just because it's not hitting me right. And I want to be able to fully appreciate it and fully take it in. So I, I will come back to it at a time where I feel like it's more appropriate and I'm at a better point to really appreciate it. But there are some books that I just, I have gotten partway through and I'm just like, no, I can't, I can't do this. Yeah. I, I basically, um, why, why did I forget what I was going to say? Never fucking <laughs> mind, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm so I'm kind of in the same boat as you will, where I won't DNF a book, but I, I won't DNF a book at all. Like if I start reading a book, I will finish it. That probably has more to do with having all, and just the fact that I started it, so I need to finish it. Otherwise, my brain will get upset with me. Mm. Um, and is also probably to do with the fact that I I try to write reviews for everything that I read. I'm not being paid for them, but. Um, to to your point about like you can't do any kind of substantive criticism um if you if you haven't actually read through it the other reason why i stick with it is is sometimes if you stick with a really bad book it can kind of reach b movie levels of inexperience fair yeah um which i've had several times when unfortunately self-published authors ask me to review their stuff um Mm. which i i always hate having to write poor reviews for them because i'm like i understand that this is like a a big deal for you but i can't like lie um yeah 